Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. Uh, this is Phil Stevens. I'm a coach, national record-holding strength athlete, and uh, founder of LiftForHope.org, an organization that couples strength events with charitable youth organizations. Hi, my name is Robert Fortney. I'm a journalist and strength athlete, former uh, editor for some muscle magazines, international and otherwise. Charles? Yes, and uh, this is Charles, and uh, I am uh, author of Muscle Logic, creator of Escalating Density Training, and I also compete in Masters Level Weightlifting. And I am Lonnie Lowry. I am a nutrition researcher, I'm an exercise physiologist, and a former competitive bodybuilder. And a doctor. Uh, indeed. He leaves <laughs> out the most important one. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd, I'd like to welcome our guest today, um, athlete, um, his bio is littered with achievement, you know, starting from even high school, an All-American, then on to NCAA championships, four-time world champion, two-time gold medalist, um, and the most decorated discus thrower in U.S. history, John Godina. Thanks for joining us today, John. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey. So, John, um, you know, I guess we'll start off. I mean, I was taking a look at your site and um, your, your new facility there. Maybe we can touch on, um, you know, what you just what what's your new facility all about? Um, we've uh, we've actually partnered with the Hit Center in Mesa, Arizona, and we've uh, we've moved in. We've got thirteen thousand square feet, and the idea is uh, we moved in there pretty much to build a training home for for throwers in the track world. Um, we also couple that with some Highland Games activities as well, but. Our whole purpose was, you know, we we need we knew that there needed to be a private environment for throwers because the only thing available at the highest levels is university or Olympic committee environment, and uh, and there's a lot of people really looking for uh, a home for their throwing activity. So we started it up. Uh, the website's www.worldthrowscenter.com, and uh, everybody can check that out and see what it's all about. But we got the best equipment, tons of space, and and we're hopefully going to be able to uh, start really drawing in lots and lots of clinicians. We've already got Susie Powell, the American record holder, lined up. And okay. my goal is to try and have uh, a clinic every weekend at some point, so of some variety, either strength, throws, running, anything like that that uh, falls under the banner of track and field and strength works. So, I mean, just to clarify, is your facility you know, just for the elite or... Anybody absolutely, absolutely not. I have I have everybody from actually from junior high school kids all the way up to Olympians and potential Olympians. We we actually we've kind of created an Olympic jobs program of our own where we use our Olympians and pre Olympians as uh, labor to help coach the younger athletes too. So it's kind of nice, you know. It's it's different than what a lot of people are used to because you know it. It is a private environment. We have to pay for our own overhead, so we do have to charge some money, but a lot of the money goes pretty much back into these Olympic athletes so that they can keep funding their way through to the uh, to the next games. Nice. That's so cool. John Phil was visiting you guys a couple of weeks ago, and he came back and he, he said, uh, he goes, man, John really works those guys hard. <laughs> so, uh, that, that's the news I'm getting anyway. Yeah, those guys, I feel bad for them right now. I mean, they're... <laughs> <laughs> this is they just came off of a nice little taper for the end of the indoor season and and so now they took a week off they literally had a golf week and just went out and goofed around for a week which I wanted to do for physical and psychological reasons but 
Um, then they come back and it's just miserable. I mean, tons of volume back again, you know, and then they've also got the load of having to throw. In the fall, they have a lot of volume, but they don't have to deal with the throwing as much. We actually take the first month or six weeks just to lift. Now they've got to get back on the volume and deal with the throwing at the same time. So and I feel kind of, I told them going into the whole year, this, this will be the hardest point in the year, right after the indoor season's over and we start up the outdoors and everything's back to being tough and you still have to compete. Yeah, needless to say, it definitely lit a fire back under me, you know, just coming to visit. It was a great deal. Um, I'm glad I'm glad you got, you got to come out. I, I, uh, I love it when people come out. I mean, I think, I think that uh you know, anything anytime people can see other people at the very top end of, of athletic ability it's always a good thing and I love watching Highland Games guys practice, I'm astounded by them. I love watching powerlifters and, and strongmen train. It's just I can't get enough of seeing the best of the best. Well let's um for those who may not know, I mean there's a lot of people that probably aren't aware of you know, what strength development plays in the role of a thrower. I mean what what do your athletes go to on a typical day right now? Well, it depends. Obviously, uh, track athletes are very big on periodization and, and kind of backwards from uh, most strength athletes where, where we actually start the year with our heaviest loads and and finish the year with almost nothing as far as load goes. And you know, I tell my guys that the, when you're the most ready to throw far is when you're going to look the sloppiest and feel the dumpiest because you're going to be completely rested and you're going to have hardly any load on your muscles and all you'll be doing is working throws and a lot of fast twitch type stuff. So um, we in the fall we got tons of volume and it's a very classic periodization program. Um, the, the devil's in the details. Um, lots of volume with short rest, timed rest in the fall and winter and we gradually increase the rest, decrease the sets and reps. Um, you know, long days in the fall and winter, literally these guys will be lifting for three hours, but with minute rest between things, doing lots and lots of volume. That's but insane. It, it is, and, and it's one of those things we, because we have such long competitive seasons, literally January through September, so we have to take advantage of the short off season. We have to overload it and do what we can, and, and a lot of it, too, that people take for granted is, you know, you get to these top levels, and a lot of it is uh, is a psychological situation. And if if these guys, I want them to feel like they've gone through stuff nobody else has gone through, and I want them to know that they didn't leave anything on the table, and there was there weren't days when they could have done more. And that plays a major major role in what I do. And even if it may be a little bit excessive on the physical side of things. It's training their minds to be tough and competitive and ready to go at a moment's notice any time of the year. So, you know, uh, a lot of people don't realize. John, sorry to cut you off, John, but man, if you you know you think about like the discus throw or shot put, and it takes like two seconds or whatever. And people don't appreciate the endurance that's required to get through these days, especially you know if you throw three events, if you throw like disc hammer and shot, that is a long, long, long right. day, you know, between, and especially if you get to finals. So you have to go through prelims and then finals. That is just an insanely long day to, to keep yourself together, huh? Exactly. And then it, and it is every single major championship, either the Worlds or the Olympics, it's the same scenario for the shot put. Men's shot put is always the very first day of the 10 days, and it always is a qualifying in the morning, and then you come back in the evening for the uh, – 
for the finals. And I'm telling you that I've won titles because people couldn't psychologically handle the fatigue or physically handle the fatigue. And I think most mostly psychologically. And these guys are comfortable. I mean, not comfortable. Nobody's comfortable in such a high-intensity environment. But these guys are comfortable psychologically with the concept that they can do a lot more than they thought they could do. And, and that's what we need. We don't need people that will ponder whether they should hold back in the morning session so that they can still perform in the evening session. We need these guys confident that it's two separate track meets and they need to be able to get it out there and do what they have to do both sessions. So if you were to say, um, you know, at the even local, national, even world level, um, most strength coaches, where, where potentially do you think they're falling short maybe with throwers? Would it be the psychological or, or the physical? Um I think, honestly, I think, uh, number one, I just think planning, because most, most strength coaches plan for football players and think throwers are the same thing, and it's not the case. Uh, throwers don't need large volumes uh, during their season. They, they don't need lots of exercises, and what they do need is the things that a lot of football strength coaches are taught to get rid of, which is a little bit of high-risk stuff with high-intensity heavyweight moving quickly, which a lot of times strength coaches in colleges and and even professional Olympic committee people are kind of afraid to do that because it's riskier, but that's you know, that's the game. But it's riskier and you you don't want to risk the athletes, that's what they're taught from, from day one, which is a good thing for most sports, but this is an extreme situation. It's we're closer to being Olympic lifters than we are to being football players by a long shot. And we have to train as such. So let, let me ask a quick question. Uh, so you have the guys purposely overreach with big volumes in their brief off-season, right? And then they really pull back hugely on the volume of training, like total minutes a week or whatever, in the long on-season. Is that right? It's not a drastic pullback. It is a gradual. Like, to give you an idea, the, the cycle from fall through indoor nationals was a, I think it was a, I want to say, 32-week cycle, and it's literally gradually dropping as you go. And the small steps allow for the weight to gradually increase as well. So there's no huge drop-off, and then we say, okay, go for threes or twos right now. We're literally whittling down and gradually growing. So there's a trade-off in volume for an increase in intensity and an increase in uh, mass. So it's a shift in what's important, and then the, at the very last instant, maybe the last two weeks, we almost drop everything off because if we were drugged up, we would look our best and and be able to lift our heaviest right when we get in and start throwing at nationals and the Olympic trials or whatever. But being being drug-free, the body has to have that recovery, and it responds like nobody's business when you take this load that you gradually have shifted to heavy weights, but it's still high enough intensity to wear the body down, you remove that, and the nervous system just revitalizes itself over a period of about two to two and a half weeks. I think a lot of young guys who are listening to this really need to take uh, a note from that training book there because there's a necessary trade-off between intensity and volume, and I think John's talking, yeah, talking about uh, at any level, right? I think one of the greatest things that ever happened to my career 
uh, was that Americans started reading all these Eastern European training methodologies and, and lifting all the way through all these major championships. And you know what? That they they don't understand the trade-off. They don't understand that you can't do everything and be everything if you're clean. And I think I've won a lot of titles because of the fact that guys try and do that. So, you know, that's uh, that's one of those things, like you said, it's a trade. You can be strong. You can have strength and endurance. Uh, if you're really maximizing that, you're not going to have your fast twitch nervous system response. That's just the way it is. But as you learn to balance things and trade things at certain times of the year, that's that's when you're uh, really getting things done. What kind of movements do you do in your weight training that uh, are, pro- are feature most prominently in your stuff? Uh, it depends on the time of year. If we're in the very early parts, tons of squat, deadlift. We do a lot of lower back stuff. These guys, the first couple of months, we're just like, yeah, does this ever stop? I mean, literally, we'll go <laughs> on a day and we'll go to, we'll start with a squat. This is this is kind of a general fall program, first day of the week. This And this is the start of the week. So first day of the week, we're squatting. Follow the squat up with some sort of an RDL. Follow the RDL up with some sort of a good morning. Follow that up with a bent over row with a barbell. Follow that up with a one arm row with a dumbbell. So the whole time they're doing this, their lower back is just either working actively or working passively through stabilization. Because everything that we need from these throwers is we need 330 pound men to be able to rotate, jump in the air, and land stable and then rebound out of it. And there's no way you're going to do that with a 16-pound shot in your neck without a massively strong lower back and hip region. The forces are insane. But when, when you just phrase it that way, John, I mean, the forces are insane. I mean, you know, you're basically, you know, doing the equivalent of uh, a 900-pound uh, one-legged squat jump. You know, it's it's just insane. It is, and it's in their awkward angles. I mean, there's things that are going on that unless you break it down frame by frame in the throw, you, you can't, I mean... It's hard to describe what's what's happening because you know you've got to experience it, but very few people get to the levels that they can hit the deep angles and positions to really experience it. But that's what literally what it feels like. If you're doing it right, there's a time in the throw when it feels like the shot's taking you, and then there's a time in the throw when it just feels like it disappears because you've done everything right. It's just light and doesn't even exist. So, but you're never going to get to that light portion if you can't take the shot when it's trying to take you for a ride and control it. And that's what that's what all the game is. Well, I, I think your center is just such a great idea because I know having thrown discus uh, at the master's level that throwers uh, often feel like the, uh, you know, the, the black sheep of the track and field community. And, and, you know, they always are the ones that, that you know, don't have adequate facilities and, uh you know, or, or almost shunned by uh, by everyone else, and it's kind of like when all the other events are going on in the stadium, they have big audiences, and throwers are kind of off to the side. So, I think having a throwing center uh, just is such a great contribution, and, and I'm sure it's going to impact our, our you know our, our Olympians uh, over the next uh, handful of years, you know, uh, that, that are coming up through the system. So, I just think it's awesome. I sure hope so, and and part of the reason why I've done it the way I've done it, and and done it in the private environment is that I think that for for too long, you know, the throwing world has been dependent upon uh, 
the powers that be, the university system or the, the committees or the USA track and field system. And I think that to a degree, being dependent like that also kind of gives you a, uh, a what's the word I'm looking for? It kind of gives you a hierarchy in your mind that you are not necessarily comfortable with but accept. And I think that by finding a private way to do this and showing throwers that, look, there's there's a value in what you do. I think it's going to be the greatest thing for the throwing world because we're we're getting sponsors and people that want to be involved with this situation completely free from the governing bodies. And it's telling throwers, look, people do care about what's going on and they do want to see you do what you do. So I'm really excited more about what it's telling throwers than even what it's providing for throwers. I know nothing about throwing, but uh, so forgive me this question, but it would seem to me that there would be lots of concern of, of injury because it seems like in throwing everybody moves in one direction only with one arm and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, you know, there it always is that way, and there's, there was some debate in the 70s and 80s whether you should at least try and balance things out by throwing left-handed, but, uh, you know, not technically, but just physically to try and get things going but it's just like it's just like anything with a, a baseball pitcher or anything like that you know you can you can do your best to to mitigate injury just by giving the whole body training with weightlifting and flexibility training and things like that you know there's always going to be a stronger side in either limb you know strangely enough it doesn't add up sometimes my left leg was much better at jumping than my right leg even though my right leg was the power leg in the throw so you know, Are you saying that you always have to throw with your right? No, you can be a, you can be a lefty. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, but again, in, I don't the, know any. Yeah, yeah in the in the spin, the power the power leg at the front of the ring is the right leg. So, okay. But but my left leg was always my better leg as far as jumping goes. So that's probably because it was always recovered. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It wasn't so tired all the time. <laughs> so. Well, that's good, John. Um. Go ahead, and we're going to move to the topic of the day. I just want to make sure that everybody visits John's site. You, you can link to it from the website right now, but uh, just for listeners out there, it's, again, Whole Fitness, W-H-O-L-E, fitnessonline.com. The actual Throwing Center website is different, and it's uh, worldthrowscenter.com. Very cool. John, I'm going to be over there next week, man. That would be great. Okay, so uh, the uh, topic of the week is setting tangible goals and... Uh, I think the guys gave this to me because I've written so much on this subject and spoken so much on this subject, and I've always been fascinated by the subject of goal setting uh, and how it relates to human performance. And uh, so what I'll do to start this off, um, uh, and then I'll let everybody else kind of chime in here, is uh, a concept that, uh, you know, I I think I'm the only person that that really has kind of promoted this concept and I'll be curious to see what everybody thinks about this, but um, I firmly believe that it's important to frame your goals uh, not around outcomes, which is 
how 99% of the goal-setting world views this subject, but instead around behaviors. And the reasoning behind that is that behaviors are more predictable and they are more within the realm of control. So since John Godin is here, I'll, I'll just give you a hypothetical example of a, of a discus thrower who currently throws 180 feet. And a typical way for that person to set a goal uh, might be to throw 190 feet in 12 months. So um, uh, that's, of course, very specific and tangible and uh, objective and measurable, and it has a time limit. And uh, so that satisfies most people's uh, definitions of a goal. But the problem is, um, as John well knows and as I know, having been a thrower, and, and this applies to all sorts of athletic pursuits, is that there are many, many factors involved in that goal that uh, are, are, are not within your control. And then there are also some factors that are within your control. So in, in, the, in, the, in terms of this 190-foot uh, throw goal, uh, I mean, things can happen that are, are, are very unpredictable. Uh, you may have an injury. Your, your coach may move away. <laughs> um, you, uh, you know, there might be bad weather. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things that can happen. You, um, you may have, you may be short. You might be, uh, you know, too short to, to throw 190 feet. And that's certainly not within your control. So, and, and many other things. Your ratio of fast twitch versus slow twitch, uh, uh, muscle fibers and, and, and all of these sorts of things. The trick in my mind, is to identify things that you can control. And generally, these, these uh, are behaviors. So, for example, um, maybe your body composition or your total body weight is not uh, optimal. Uh, maybe, maybe you're undersized. Maybe you're six foot tall and you weigh uh, 198 pounds. That's, that's not um, uh, great proportions to, to, to throw the discus 190 feet. So one behavior that could support that uh, that goal would be to get maybe 230 grams of protein per day. That is reasonably within your control, and if your premise is correct, you should gain muscular body weight. You know, assuming you're training and all of that. Um, you know, another another goal could be that you consistently get five sessions a weekend with your coach, or or to join a, a throwing center like John's. You know, these are things that you can control. So. Basically, you set up a premise that if I do X, it should lead me to Y and so forth. And uh, so that's my, uh, that's my take on this. And uh, John, what do you think about that, being a thrower? Um, how, do you, uh, how do you coach your, 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 your athletes in terms of setting goals? I think uh, there's, I'm very, very similar mindset to you. I, I have... Uh, you know, to give you a for instance, with uh, Dan Taylor this indoor season, you know, he came in six months ago and we had some very serious work to do as far as positional changes and, and all of that. And as we were going through uh, the indoor season, I knew that, you know, nothing really big was going to happen. So the whole the whole goal for the indoor season had, didn't even have a number. The whole goal was I want you to go through all the meets and hit all your positions. That was it. You know, it just so happens he wins the U.S. championship, but that's because, you know, he's a freak. That's the way it is. Yeah, yeah. But but the goal was never throw this far or this far. The goal was always hit your positions at these meets because the hardest thing to do for anybody 
is to change your technique in a competition. So that was all our goal, was to get comfortable being different in competition. I, I love that because don't, don't you find that a lot of times the desire to, to win is sometimes your biggest enemy, you know, your yeah. desire to get the result. I'll, I'll give you kind of a, an, an analogy. When I'm coaching weightlifters, meaning people competing in Olympic weightlifting, um, the des- if you're learning how to snatch, um, the desire to make the lift sometimes gets, gets in the way of, of correct technique. And we're working with an athlete right now getting ready to do, to do his first meet, and he's got a very nice power snatch, but he's a little bit dicey in terms of squat snatching, in terms of, you know, keeping his balance and everything. So a lot of times he'll not squat that snatch down because he's worried about dropping it behind or missing the lift. And right. so I, what I coach this athlete to do is, you know, your goal is not to make the lift. Your goal is to squat under that snatch. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think that's a great point, that people worry so much about lifting performance or uh, just the end result of winning if they would just focus on the moment and really kind of enjoy it and get into it, then winning sort of takes care of itself for a lot of people. I mean, if they have the right coaching, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say that I've gotten to the point where I have less uh, imperative number goals, but I still do have long-term goals for these guys, and, and they know them. I mean, I tell Dan, you know, down the road, you need the world record. There's no physical reason why that should not happen, and and we're going to be working towards that. That being said, I don't tell him he needs to do it today, and I don't tell him he needs to do it this year. I just say that's that's got to be in the back of your mind as to where your potential lies. So, um, I I love uh, I love the doing the right thing day to day setup. But I also think that I, I really like these guys to have that mindset that there is there is a point that they are striving for in the long run. Very cool. Well, I, I think track and field, and, 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 and by the way, I'm going to add one other point to this, um, to this discussion about setting tangible goals is that, um, you know, we encourage people to compete, and it doesn't matter if you are uh, advanced or beginner or young or old or male or female, but no matter who you are, competition sharpens the goal-setting process. And when you achieve a certain throw or a certain lift, and, and the reason I love throwing and lifting is because they are objective and tangible, and there are standards out there that you can compare yourself to, and when you do a, a, a successful throw or a lift in a competition environment, um, you know that you have put a mark down, and, and uh, that's that's now your competition. That's what you're competing against. And uh, there are a lot of sports that uh, are a little bit more subjective, but uh, lifting and track are just phenomenal because of the objectivity. And if you know, if my best snatch in competition is 80 kilos and I go out in the meet and I get 84 kilos, you know, nobody can take that away from you and nobody can question the fact that, you know, you've now achieved something that you've never done before and there's just, there's just immense satisfaction in that regardless of, of how talented or how novice you are. The goal really is just to improve on your best and uh, so we really do encourage people to compete. And, and I tell you what I love about it too is that the residual effect of it is that it, it, because it is so objective, it establishes a true hierarchy in the world of, of these sports. And what that does is it filters out a lot of jerks. 
I mean, there compare the people that you meet at lifting meets and track meets yeah. to the people that you would play pickup basketball with at the gym, and <laughs> tell me who's a lot more fun and who's <laughs> because all the jerks that think they're good disappear. Yeah, and I love it. There's there's uh there's a big difference between, you know, your gym stories and uh what happens in official competition, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. So that's so cool. Uh, there's there's two huge aspects for it to me. Is one is yes, competing and like you were alluding to, John, having keeping your eye on the big prize. A very high bar set, be it a world record, national record, whatnot. But then I also think a lot of people get a bit too wrapped up in what others are doing mm-hmm. and instead of what they're doing. You know, they're so wrapped up and worried about, man, he's throwing this. Well, you're so damn worried about that, you're not paying attention to what you're doing. And yeah. they lose track of their own, you know, pay attention to yourself a little bit. Yeah, have high goals, but you need to turn everything internal. Because if you're paying too much attention to somebody else, you're not putting the work in on you. Absolutely, I think that I think that 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 is the case ninety percent of the time. The about ten percent of the time that I think it is constructive to be aware of what your competitors are doing is the very first portion of any season. And this is track because it's different than obviously lifting and strength athletes because we have lots and lots of competitions. But the first four or five meets of this season, when Dan and Drew go out and they're competing against these guys, they need to see where these other guys are at because it's so tight with, with all these guys that they need to know I'm I'm this far back. At that point, they've got their assessment, and then they can move forward and do what they need to do. But awareness of where you stand is very important in that portion of the year for me. That's so critical. And, and by the way, this is slightly off the goal-setting thing, but, you know, I just the, – the whole – you, you can't imagine if you are an aspiring thrower how important it is to get in to see uh, like a center like John's where you have these mammoth national and, and world level throws going on and you know sometimes you just got to see you know if you're talking shot put sometimes if you haven't seen a 70 foot shot put uh, you know you just don't think it's possible and, and you almost improve just by osmosis don't you John I mean if if the biggest shot put you've ever seen is 50 feet. Um, that in your head sort of sets a barrier in, in, in an unconscious way. And the moment you see a 70-foot throw or a put, uh, all of a sudden your your horizons just kind of expand. You just realize that, that bigger things are possible. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the first time you see, I mean, there, there's, there's several moments in my life that are like aha moments. And the first time you see one of those things happen, just, it changes everything in yeah. perspective. Yeah. And I think one of the... The big aha moments for me, which wasn't even in my sport, is in javelin throwing. And but just seeing it made me think, wow, what can I do with what I'm doing? And all all that was was I was out at the world championships, and there's a guy named Jan Zelesny that I don't know that many strength athletes would know about, but he's a world record holder in the javelin. Mm-hmm. And he was he of all the people that I've ever seen in track is the most amazing guy. I mean, literally. The stuff he did, the power he put into a javelin was astounding. It was like the thing got shot out of a rocket. It was unbelievable. And all I could think about was, I want to be that good at what I do. And, and you know, just seeing greatness in any form is positive for a young athlete. And, you know, I wish more people would recognize that. I, I, I am equally inspired by athletes from other sports and uh 
I, I just wonder how many people, uh, you know, kind of reach out to other sports as, as sources of inspiration. I know, I mean, I, I, I'm amazed by, you know, everything from golfers to tennis players to track athletes, you know, even though uh, I'm not really doing any of that stuff. But, uh, you know, greatness is greatness. I find inspiration in anything done well. I mean, even if I don't know anything about it, I mean, I'm getting kind of <clears throat> interested now to go and check out some of this throwing stuff because, like I said, I, I don't know anything about it at all. But, uh, yeah, to see somebody in anything that's really good at it, it's very inspiring. And it's smart to make a study of what makes dominant people dominant. I'm sure you could find at least some common threads, whether it's golf or javelin or Olympic lifting or what have you, you know. Very cool. Good discussion, guys. Yeah, most definitely. I think uh got a question here for John. Get to him here. Tom Van Vleck from uh, Green Top, Missouri. Um, I understand that Ryan Vieira is holding a, some seminars for Scottish Highland Games at your throw center in AZ. What tips do you have for Highland Games athletes as far as training? Uh, this is... First of all, Highland Games number one, I will never do because it is insane. <laughs> <laughs> these guys, these guys, I don't know who thought throwing 56 pounds for height with one arm is a good idea, but they're, uh, they're, they're insane and I do respect everything that they do and I love watching it. I mean, I've been out to the last two Highland Games at Phoenix and I went up to Flagstaff to watch that one. Um, I love I love seeing it, but but uh, the the pitch games guys is this number one is we've got Ryan Vieira best best Highland Games athlete of all time, and we're we've got him quarterly. We he literally wants to come down every three months, and we he wants to continue this series indefinitely, and and it's great for him because we handle all the management of it, and it's great for the athletes because they've got a situation where. They're going to get to do their throwing in the morning, but then they get to come inside and be climate controlled and comfortable in July in order to uh, <laughs> do film film analysis, weightlifting analysis, and uh, everything else that goes along with it, other than the throwing. So um, we're trying to, you know, Highland Games is is very similar to just throwing. You know, it, to a large degree, there's so many events that, and they're so heavy that they can actually use the throws themselves as strength training, whereas the you know, shot and disc, we, we don't have that advantage. But um, it's a very, very similar training process. It's a get strong, get technically sound, and, and believe me, I, I can't help but watch when these guys throw. I'm always astounded when I see these massively heavy implements going really, really far. Very cool. I think that's about all we got for today, fellas. Awesome. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Definitely. Thanks for letting me come on, guys. Not every day we have yeah. a multiple world champion join us on, on the show, so yeah. that's awesome. True. Thanks well, very much. Really sure. And I will see you next week, Charles. Sounds good, John. All right. Have a good one. Thanks, John. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for information If you're interested in starting a diet or an exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of credentialed dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists.